Years ago, I read a book called Lord Falgren's Letters. Lord Falgren's Letters is written by a guy named Randy Alcorn, and it's a fictional book chronicling the letters a demon lord named Falgren writes to an underling demon. The letters are instructions on how to deceive and tempt a man in an effort to destroy his family and ultimately his soul. Now, obviously, the book is fictional, but it's very thought-provoking. In, in one part of the book, the, the main human who is lost finds his mother's Bible and opens it up to Ephesians 6 and 10 and reads about the need to put on the whole armor of God. The underling records this and sends it back to Falgren, who's upset that he had seen that passage and he had read it. Falgren says it is in the demon's best interest for humans not to take the supernatural world seriously. It is in the demon's best interest for humans to believe it's the realm of myth and make-believe. He he wants what's best for demons is for humans to live as though this world and this time is all there is. Now that idea really stuck in my head. The, The idea that it's for the demon's best interest for us to live as though this is all there is and there's no spiritual or eternal world. Now, when we look in God's Word, it's very open, very straightforward about the unseen spiritual realm, which has demons and angels indwelling it. And God's Word not only says it's there, it tells us quite a bit about it. It informs us that there is one evil spiritual power who rules over all the evil spiritual powers. A real being, not a symbol of evil, not... The embodiment of evil, but but a being, a literal being named Satan, who prowls around the earth like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. God's word tells us he is the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from recognizing their need for Jesus and seeing the truth of the gospel. That God's word tells us this this evil being is is smart. He is able to appear and make it seem as though he himself is an angel of light and his teachers are apostles of Christ. Meanwhile, they are teaching soul-damning deception to people. God's Word tells us this evil being Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies and he is the one who deceives the whole world. And he deceives because his ultimate goal is always and only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now what God's word teaches us about Satan is very contrary to the popular cultural teachings about Satan. Right? So for example, Satan is not the ruler of hell who torments people who goes there. Right? Hell is not Satan's dominion. He doesn't rule over hell. When we get to later chapters in Revelation, we're going to find Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire where he himself will be tormented forever. And ever. Satan does not live in the underworld where he gives orders. He is here. He roams the earth looking to deceive and destroy as many lives and as many souls as he can. And he is in a a state of constant rebellion against the Lord God of heaven. And because of his rebellion against God, there is a, a constant spiritual war going on. And this war has been raging since our first parents were in the Garden of Eden. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this war, it affects all of life. It affects our lives and it affects 
everyone we know and love. There is no way to avoid the war. There is no foxhole. There is no bunker. There is no neutral country where we can retreat and and not be a part of it. Being born on this planet makes us people who are a part of this war. If we have repented of our sins, believed upon Jesus Christ, and been born again, we have been actively enlisted into the army of the Lord. And Satan focuses heavily upon us. Where our study is at in the book of Revelation is going to give us a lot of information about the spiritual war we are currently a part of, whether we know about it or not. It will help us, hopefully, to be able to fight and win the battles we will face in our lives. So turn to Revelation 12, page 955, if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 12 and 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head had a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head were seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she might devour her child. He might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male, who was going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, and there she would be nourished for 1260 days. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels warring against the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they did not prevail. And there was found no longer found a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell and dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time away from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent hurled water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. <coughs> So he might cause her to be swept away in the flood. But the earth helped the woman and opened up its mouth, drank up the river which the dragon had hurled out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. title of the message is The War of the Ages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We rejoice today to know your word has given us this guidance. Father, we 
may be intimidated by the war we're a part of, but we know it's real. We know it's going on. We, we, we learn how to fight it. We learn about our enemy. You have done so much of the heavy lifting for us, God, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your word which lays these things out. We thank you for your spirit which will apply it to our hearts and, and help us to understand it. And we thank you for your spirit that will enable us to live and have victory over the enemy. But most of all, we are thankful, Lord, for the blood of the Lamb which enables us to overcome. Father, today search our hearts and try us and make us to see, most of all, have we been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Does has Christ redeemed us? And have we been born again? For we have no hope of fighting and winning this battle or even being able to stand apart from Jesus and what He has done for us. Guide us today to, to have ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying to us. We would take this and apply it to our lives. We would learn what we need to learn and we would do what we need to do. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Don't let me be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Work in all of our lives and do what you know needs to be done. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we, as we look at this passage, we look at Revelation as a whole, it's important to remember Revelation is not necessarily given to us in chronological order. Throughout the book, we are giving... A vision of something happening. And then it shifts to a different place where we are shown something from a different perspective. Therefore, the events of Revelation 12 don't exactly follow the events in Revelation 11. Uh, the question we could say is, well, when does this happen? I mean, are these events before the tribulation? Are they after the tribulation? Are they during the tribulation? I would say it's likely in some ways all of the above. Right, look at verse 4 to see what I'm talking about. It talks about Satan's tail sweeping away a third of the angels of heaven and hurling them to earth. Well, this is speaking about Satan's rebellion that, that took place before Genesis 3. Right? This is before Satan was found in the garden trying to tempt Adam and Eve. He had already led a rebellion and, and drew away one third of God's angels into this rebellion. So, so the first part of verse 4 takes place thousands of years before the tribulation period. Back in Genesis 3, the early parts of Genesis 3. But we also see in verse 4 that the woman was about to give birth to a son... And as she was about to give birth, the, the dragon was going to do what he can to devour the child. Well, the child is Jesus. We'll see when we get to verse 4 in just a few minutes. And so that happened in Matthew, in the early parts of the Gospel of Matthew. So that happened well after Genesis 3, but well before the tribulation period. So what I take from this is... Revelation 12, in some ways, gives us a, an overview, almost a heavenly picture of the war of the ages as it has raged through the ages. We see the war in some ways from the very beginning where Satan draws angels away from God in rebellion. We see it on towards the end where Satan is cast out and, and all of these things. So it's, a, it's really just a picture of the war of the ages. 
And we kind of get a broad overview of how it has raged and how it has been waged and how it is waged through the years. This war began when Satan initially rebelled against God and became God's enemy. At various times, this war has raged in the spiritual realm where people didn't see or know. And at other times, it has made its way to the earth where people were a part of the war. But ultimately, Satan's war is not against you or I. Ultimately, Satan's war is against God. Satan is in rebellion against God. And so he does what he can to humans, through humans, to accomplish his will of rebelling against God. So our key truth for this week and next week, because we won't have time to get through all of Revelation 12 today. Satan's attacks on man flow from his rebellion against God. Now this is, I think, a really important truth for us to understand. But ultimately, we're not the center of the war. It is a war of Satan against God. We, we are periphery. We are casualties. We are collateral damage, so to speak, in Satan's war against God. Now, this passage teaches us three truths we have to know so we can stand strong against this rebellion and not be drawn away into it. We'll look at two today and one next week. First is Satan is constant, is in constant rebellion against God. Everything that's happened in this chapter and really every evil thing happening in our world is because Satan is in a constant state of rebellion against God. Now, Satan's rebellion is interesting because it's not one of unbelief. Satan knows God is real. Satan knows Jesus lived on the earth. Satan knows he lived a sinless life. He did miracles. He died on the cross for the sins of humanity. And he rose from the dead on the third day. Satan knows all of those things. His rebellion is not one of unbelief. He refuses to believe. His is one of pride. In his pride, Satan refuses to submit to the rule and the reign of God. Now we are given some some details about his Reign about his rebellion in this passage. In verse 3, we're told about a sign appearing in heaven, a great red dragon. Now, a sign describes a symbol pointing to a reality. The symbol is the dragon. The reality is of Satan himself. Satan is identified in Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 22, as the dragon that's pictured in this sign. The symbolic language given of him having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. It speaks of the authority which Satan has on the earth. Right? Satan is called the, the God of this world, who rules this world. First John tells us, for instance, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So he has great power and great authority in this World. That seems to be the point of the seven heads and the seven crowns on the seven heads. The first part of verse 4, we're told his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. Stars here almost certainly is representative of angels. The angels who joined in Satan's rebellion against God uh, and sought to, to upend 
God's rule so that Satan could reign. Now, we aren't told exactly how many a third of the angels it is. But if we look at other places in, in God's word, say Matthew twenty six fifty three, Jesus says he could call more than 12 legions of angels to come and help him. Now, if we assume a angelic legion is similar to a Roman legion in which the time Jesus was on the earth, then a Roman legion varied from maybe 4,200 to 5,200. So this means the number of angels Jesus could have summoned would be 50,400 to 62,400. And that's just using the 12, not the more than 12 part. So, so what I gather from this is that there are a lot of demons who have been cast from heaven and are on the earth doing Satan's bidding. We don't know how many. There's no way to know for sure how many there are. It's just a lot. And while this tells us a bit about Satan's rebellion and about where the demons come from, it doesn't fill in a lot of details. Why did Satan rebel? What did he hope to accomplish? What was the goal? This doesn't tell us, but when we look in the Old Testament, we find passages where God addresses human kings. And as he addresses these human kings, he addresses them in ways that really could not be limited to a human. He calls them by names that could not be applied merely to a person. And so the idea seems to be that God is not only talking to the human king, but to the evil power behind the human king. That these wicked kings did wicked things, but there was one ruler behind their wickedness and their reign. And, and that, would, that would mesh well with Ephesians 6.12 saying we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and uh, in high places. So who is the ruler behind the wicked rulers of the world? Satan is. Who is the power behind the evil powers of this world? Satan is. In, in these passages, and there's two in particular, God addresses the human king Satan is using to accomplish Satan's will in the world. He addresses them as the king itself, as the person, but he also addresses the force of evil behind the kings. The two main passages, one is Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, when he talks about the king of Tyr. And we won't look at that when we don't have time, but the other one is Isaiah 14, where God talks to the king of Babylon. And notice how he describes this king. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning. You son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth. Now think about that. You have fallen from heaven. You have been cut down to the earth. That, that would, I mean, that fits really well with what we see in Revelation 12 about Satan being cast down to the earth and being on the earth. He defeated nations, but he said in his heart, now here again, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain in the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. 
And this, I think, is what we get at. This is where Satan's rebellion comes in. This is the basis behind Satan's rebellion. His, his one overarching desire is to be worshipped as God. He wants to sit on the throne of God. He wants to be worshipped as God. And, and so he, he moves throughout the earth. And he does all kinds of things to get people to worship him in various ways. He is really the force... Behind all non-Christian religions. He is worshipped as God in those places. When we get deeper into Revelation, we hit into Revelation 13 and 14, we see him, the, his Antichrist, arise and ascend to the place. And, and Satan achieves the greatest victory he's ever had and ever will have as being worshipped as God as the whole world. Other than those who have been redeemed by Christ, will bow down and will worship the beast. This is his goal. But ultimately, the second truth we have to see from this, nevertheless, you will be brought down to shield to the grave, to the recesses of the pit. Ultimately, Satan fails and God wins. This is an important truth for us as disciples of Jesus to hold on to. Satan wins Multitudes of victories in our day. We see them all the time on the news. He, in, the, in, the, in the tribulation period, he is going to win enormous victories. But those are small victories. He doesn't win the major battle. In the end, God wins. And Satan is brought down. And he is tossed into the pit. He is tossed into the lake of fire. So Satan's rebellion begins sometime around Genesis 3. And it will continue until he is fully and finally defeated in the time period described in Revelation 20 and 10. And while he rages, and while he reigns on the earth to an extent, he will ultimately be defeated. God wins. Satan's rebellion against God is the root cause of all we see him doing in the world because his desire is to be worshipped as God. So Satan is in rebellion against God, but also Satan seeks to thwart God's plans. One of the ways Satan works in rebellion against God is seeking to thwart God's plans in the world. If Satan knows God is going to do something, then Satan works to keep that plan from coming to pass. We see in, in verse 1, a sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant. She cried out in labor. And in pain, giving birth. Who is this woman? Who does this, this sign represent? I believe it represents Israel. As it's a representation of Israel as a whole. Uh, the description of the woman is similar to what we see in Genesis 37. When Joseph has a dream. And notice what it says. He had another dream and has told us, informed his brothers of it. He said, I have yet another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon, the eleven stars... Were bowing down to me. He told it to his father as well and his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will I and your mother actually and brothers actually come to you and bow down? So in this dream, Joseph is the sun, Rachel is the moon, and the stars are Joseph's brothers. Revelation twelve, there is a, a woman, she has twelve stars, seemingly to represent all twelve tribes of Israel. We're told in verse two she is pregnant, she is going to give birth. Uh, later, we see in verse 5, she's going to give birth to a son. 
who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So what person came out of Israel who is significant and key to God's plan in the world who will rule the nations with a rod of iron? Now, if you don't say Jesus, you're, you're not paying attention. This is not talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. This is talking about Jesus coming out of Israel. And as Jesus is born, we see that the devil, the dragon, comes to try to devour the child. This is Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan in the world. Now this is not a one-time event. This is something we see all throughout God's Word. Right? All throughout God's Word, all throughout redemptive history, we see God doing something and Satan's rebellion evident as he tries to undo it to thwart God's plan. So I want us to look at a couple. Turn with me. This one we're going to look at. I don't know if we'll look at the others. But turn to Genesis 3, uh, page 4, if you have a pew Bible. Now, we probably are familiar with the story creation. God created the world, created Adam and Eve, put them in a garden, gave them a job to tend the garden, told them to be fruitful and multiply, gave them one rule, could not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this time, they have a perfect relationship with one another. They have a near-perfect communion with God. All things go well until Satan comes along. And, and, and as Satan comes along, this is God planting humanity, who he will have communion with, who will worship him, who he will love and lavish his goodness upon. And, and Satan comes and he leads humanity to join his rebellion. And as he does, he does something. And, and I, I want to point this out because of how, how it is today. right? So the serpent was more cunning than any of the animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat? From any tree of the garden. Hath God said, the King James translation, has God said. This is his first attack. He is casting doubt on God's word. Now, we could look at Genesis 2 and we would see that they knew God had said. God spoke it to them. They they heard him. God told Adam and, and Adam passed it along. And Satan comes along and says, are you sure God actually said that? Now, this isn't a a question like to determine their knowledge. It is seeking to undermine the Word of God in their life. To undermine their confidence in what God has clearly said to them. Because Satan knows if they don't believe God's Word, they won't obey God's Word. And if they don't obey and they rebel, Satan knows what happens then. Because he has rebelled and has experienced the consequences. Has God said? Now the woman says to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. Now notice what Satan does next. The serpent said to the woman, You shall certainly, or you certainly will not die. Now he just flat out contradicts God's word. But he moves from casting doubt to contradicting. And, and I think the order is important. If they are confident God has said, you shall not eat, and he just comes up and says, it'll be okay if you eat it, they're going to be like, no, God said no. But if he casts doubt, are you sure 
That's really what God said. Are you sure that's, that's right? Are you sure you heard Him properly? Are you sure that's actually what He said? I'm, I'm pretty sure. No, that's not what's going to happen. He, he contradicts it. Tells them not to worry. You're, you're not going to die. You'll be okay. And then He convinces them God's Word is a burden. Look at the next part. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's other two attacks to cast doubt and to contradict God's word lay the foundation for this ultimate successful attack. He convinced them God was keeping them from something good. God didn't have their best interest at heart. God wasn't trying to protect them from sin and the curse of sin. God wasn't trying to to do anything positive for them. God was trying to hinder them from living their best life now. And so God is holding you back. God is holding you down. God is not for your ultimate good. God is actually, God is actually the one who is opposed to you. I'm trying to give you freedom. Send you on the right way. And so they saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, good to make one wise. And so they they ate. Now, I wanted to especially look at this one because Satan's leading humanity to join his rebellion. He's still recruiting people to his rebellion. Now, Adam and Eve died spiritually. Everybody born after Adam and Eve was born spiritually dead, resistant to the rule of God. That's why we don't like people telling us what to do. No matter what. That's why if, if you tell someone don't touch it they're going to be like don't touch this right that that is that is that ultimate rebellion that brokenness within us but satan also knows that rebellion can be overcome by the grace of god and so he is constantly trying to recruit people to stay in his rebellion what does he do how does he continue to lead humanity in rebellion against god he casts doubt on god's word are are, are you sure I mean, the Greek word, I mean, do you even know anybody who knows Greek? How do you, can, can something from Hebrew be accurately translated into English? I mean, can, is that even a possibility? Isn't something important lost in the process? I mean, how do you know? I mean, there's so many translations. How, how do you know which one? I mean, they're not all exactly the same. Well, yeah, but that was so long ago that was written. Surely... Surely the world is different. Surely morality changed. We know more now than we knew then. Right? Surely. He's casting doubt on God's Word. Contradicting God's Word. You pick anything in here, God's Word, that says, Thou shalt not. And you Google, is this thou shalt not a sin? be ten kajillion answers. And a good portion of that ten kajillion will be reasons why it's not a sin anymore. Greek was translated wrong. Nobody ever understood it that way until the 1970s. Oh, there's just, the world is different now. We're more enlightened. Now, and many of these people aren't going to come from, like, atheists. They're going to be people who pastor churches. They're going to be seminary professors. They're going to be people claiming to be devoted disciples of Jesus. But... They're contradicting what God has said in His Word. And so, 
Who is the ultimate behind their words? Certainly not the spirit of truth who inspired the word of truth. The enemy. And then he, he convinces people God's word is a burden. Again, it doesn't hurt anybody, does it? I mean, how does what happens, how does that hurt other people? Why would God care? I just I can't imagine a God who would care about that. I mean, if, if me and this other person are happy in what we do, why would there be a God in heaven who would care about something like that? I mean, if it makes you happy, how can how can something that makes you happy be wrong? It, it isn't love, love, right? It isn't just you should you should live by your truth, and and anything that tells you otherwise, it's just trying to hold you back in life. Now, I, you you do what you want. I'm just trying to help you live your best life now. Where does all that come from? Again, not from the spirit of truth who inspired the word of truth. But from the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan's desire is to keep humanity in rebellion. And and those three things work so well in the garden, he just continues to do it now. But this wasn't the only time he tried to oppose and thwart God's plans. He tried to kill the Hebrew people. We won't look there because we don't have time. But in Genesis 3, here verse 16... The story happens. God comes. He calls them on the carpet. To the woman, he says, I, I will multiply your pain at childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children. Your desire will be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Um, then he goes on to Adam. He curses the ground, thorns and thistles. He talks about that. And up above it, and I miss my spot. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock, more than the animal of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and of her descendant, singular. He shall bruise your head, you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the word, the first word for bruise is actually different than the second word for bruise. The first word, it, it really pictures crush. So here's a, a prophecy given by God to the serpent that a descendant, descendant singular, of the woman would come. And this descendant would crush the head of the serpent and he would bruise this descendant in the process. So Satan then knows there is someone God is going to bring a human into the world who is going to undo what he has just worked to do. And so God then throughout the book of Genesis, he picks a nation. He picks a man named Abram and he promises him descendants as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And he begins to work through this man. And Satan then begins to realize this is the family. This is the lineage. So God takes this man and his family and he goes down through the generations. He, he moves them into Egypt so they can thrive and they can prosper. And while they're in Egypt, they end up being enslaved by the Egyptians. But they still thrive and prosper because God is greater than Pharaoh. And as they thrive and prosper, Pharaoh becomes afraid of what will happen. We've made them our slaves, but if another nation attacks and they join the other nation, we will be undone. And so he says, here, Pharaoh says, here's what you should do. He tells the midwives, when the, the child is born, if it's a guy, you kill it right there on the spot, say it was stillborn. And the Hebrew midwives are like, no, 
They feared God. They wouldn't do it. They told him the children were born and cried before they had a chance to squash them, as Pharaoh said. And so they didn't do it. So Pharaoh sends out this massive edict. And he tells all of his people, if you see a Hebrew born and it's a boy, you take it and chunk that little feller into the Nile so the alligators can chomp it on down. And you let it drown. And, and the girls will be fine because they'll marry Egyptian men and they'll become Egyptians. Where did that come from? I mean, what kind of person wants to kill innocent children? What, what kind of, where does the desire to murder innocent people come from? Well, if we understand God's word, especially in light of kings and rulers, as we've seen in, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, there is an evil power behind the power of Pharaoh seeking to murder the children. What's he doing? If Satan can stop all of the, the male children and kill out the children like that, there's not a Jewish person. There's not a Hebrew. There's, there's no Messiah to come to crush his head. Satan tries to kill baby Jesus. His attempt in Exodus failed. And so, turn back to Revelation 12. The story of Satan trying to devour the child as he's born. Well, there's a very literal interpretation of that. Jesus is born. Um, Herod understands that this is going to be the king of the Jews. So he wants to find out where he's at. The Wise men who know where Jesus is, they don't come back, they don't tell him. And so he has an idea of when the, these magi saw the, the star. So Jesus could be anywhere from a newborn to maybe three years old. And so he sends his soldiers out to just kill all the one to three year old children, little boys. Again, who, who inspires people to kill babies, to kill the innocent? Certainly, again, not God, right? What is it? it? There is an evil power behind Herod trying to thwart God's plan. Satan, though, is bold and persistent. So he even tries to lead Jesus into rebellion. Matthew 4, Jesus goes off into the wilderness to fast and pray and prepare himself for ministry. Satan comes to him and begins to try to tempt the Son of God himself. Now, if Jesus had sinned, he couldn't have been the Savior of the world. He could not have died for the sins of others. It would have totally undone the plan that God had set in motion all the way back in Genesis 3. But, of course, he fell. Jesus overcame at every stop. And then Satan still works to prevent people from believing the gospel. One of the ways Satan seeks to thwart God's plans is to prevent people from believing the gospel and be saved. Paul said that he blinds the minds of unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 keeps them from seeing the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They, they don't see their need for Jesus. They don't understand the greatness of the gospel. They don't see the power in what Jesus has done. Matthew 13, Jesus talks about Satan snatching the good seed out of people's minds to, to keep them from being saved. They hear the gospel. They have an opportunity to believe it, but before they can do it, Satan will snatch it out of their mind and it's just a picture of Satan doing whatever he can to thwart God's plan to save souls. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't tell us exactly like what does he use to snatch it or what does he do to blind people. And the reality is he can do so many things. I heard a preacher preach and he had just gotten glasses when he started pastoring and so he pushed them up a lot. And a guy sent him a message told him, you 
you pushed your glasses up 75 times in the message. He had not listened to a word that was preached because he was too busy counting how many times he punched his glasses up. Where did that come from? certainly wasn't the Spirit of God leading him to count. It was the enemy snatching the good seed. Or we get distracted by others who are here. Well, they're here. They're not here. I hope they're listening or look at them or, or whatever. What, what is that? That is Satan snatching the good seed. That is Satan blinding the minds. Right? He is super smart. What he would use to blind me and snatch it from me is not necessarily what he would use with you. And he knows what will distract us and he knows what will work. And so he tries to get us to focus on those, to think about that, to, to, to push back and not receive what the word has for us. And all of it is his active attempt to thwart God's plan of saving us, making us his own. And in the last few minutes, I want to ask you a question. This is a question for all of us to ask ourselves and honestly answer in light of what we've seen. In what ways might Satan be thwarting God's plan for my life? I mean, God's Word tells us God has great plans for humanity. He intends to save every one of us, that we would be born again. To fill us with His Spirit. To let us be led in the Spirit so that we would not walk in the flesh. He plans to sanctify us and make us ever more like Jesus. He, he plans for us to find and use his, our spiritual gifts so that we can help advance His kingdom and do the good works He planned for us beforehand. He, he plans for us to join with a local church to work to advance His kingdom in the community we're a part of and to the ends of the earth. He plans for us to be a godly husband, for us to be a godly wife. He plans for us to be godly parents who raise godly children. He plans for us to be holy. He, he has so many plans for us. And the question is, are those plans coming to fruition in our lives? And if they're not, why not? Is it God seeking to, to keep us from doing what He said He wants us to do in His Word? Or, or is it the enemy working in us to thwart God's plan in our lives? Now, if we have repented of our sins and we have been born again, believed in Jesus and been born again, Satan cannot thwart God's plan for our salvation. He has lost that battle. But that doesn't mean he, he gives up, right? He is nothing if not tenacious. So what does he do? Well, he, he works to thwart God's plan for us to be holy by tempting us to sin. He, he works to, to keep us from being godly spouses or godly parents or convinces us we don't have to find and use our spiritual gifts or join with a local church or, or grow in Christ-likeness. He, he tempts us to complacency rather than to continually move forward. He, he can work in any number of ways. I mean, you find in the Bible where it says, this is what's ours because of what Christ has done, then if that's not being done in our lives, if that's not coming to pass in our lives, there's a reason. Right? If, if, we're not, if the Bible says, do this, and we're not doing it. There's a reason. And it's not God leading us to do the opposite of what He said. It is the enemy of our souls. 
has deceived us as disciples of Jesus and we are allowing him to thwart God's plans in our lives. It's the question for all of us. In what ways might Satan be thwarting God's plan for my life? I can't answer that for you. I don't know. And all of us can take the easy way out. All of us can say, well, nothing. But is that the truth? Satan doesn't have to have the big victories. Any victory in us is a victory. And any victory in us gives him a foothold in our life to have more victories. So the question is, are we going to be honest? Search our lives. See if God's plans are being thwarted. Figure out why. And then undo that so that we can be all God intends for us to be. Or are we going to let the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls win in our lives? Even if we say that's just a tiny little thing. In what ways might Satan be thwarting God's plans for your life? If you have never made the decision to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, that that is Satan thwarting God's plans for your life. Jesus died for all, that all might be saved, that all might be born again. And the need is to respond to that. With repentance, turn from our sin, turn to Jesus, and believing on the Savior who died and rose again. Everything has to start there. And if we have not made that decision, if we have not come to Jesus and let Him save us, then at this moment, Satan is thwarting God's primary plan for our lives. We must repent. We must believe. This is where everything starts. Salvation is found only in Christ. Let's stand.